It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. As a result of relatively new abortion regulations across the country, Southern California's Planned Parenthoods have witnessed a dramatic increase in out-of-state patients seeking reproductive care. The California report highlights the thousands of Planned Parenthood workers who recently voted to unionize due to that increase. Then, after a look at local upcoming weather, KVMR's Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker in another installment of Water News. We close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. And here are some California stories we're following. Planned Parenthood workers across Southern California facilities voted to unionize this month. Workers ranging from clinicians to lab assistants to licensed social workers will join SEIU United Health Workers West, a union representing 100,000 workers across the state. They say they've faced an overwhelming increase in patients from other states seeking reproductive care following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. They want stronger staffing levels and first-rate patient care. And in Central California, a series of earthquakes hit last night. The largest recorded was a 4.5 magnitude earthquake near Patterson in Stanislaus County. Five other earthquakes hit the area from Monday evening to early this morning. While the quakes may have caught nearby residents by surprise, Angie Lex with the Berkeley Seismology Lab says the series of earthquakes aren't too uncommon. But we do live in earthquake country, and there is always a possibility that we may have a larger earthquake. Having a plan in place and being prepared for the next big earthquake um, is honestly my biggest takeaway when there there are these kind of moderate-sized earthquakes. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines the pursuit of good health on the web at chcf.org slash lbca. Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com slash ca. Guideline. The California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, advancing the frontiers of ocean science, exploration, and discovery on the web at schmidtocean.org. It's been six months since the levee protecting the small central coast farming community of Pajaro burst, flooding the town and forcing thousands out of their homes. Yesterday, we heard a story about the difficult road to recovery for residents. Today, we focus on the status of the levee. As KAZU Scott Cohn reports, major repairs are years away. Just off busy San Juan Road, a couple miles outside of Pajaro, Contractors with the Army Corps of Engineers are lining up for a race against time. This is where the Pajaro levee failed March 10th, sending a torrent of water into town and uprooting 3,000 lives. The mission out here, repair the levee here and at two other breaks downstream in time for the rainy season. Mark Strudley, executive director of the Pajaro Regional Flood Management Agency, is confident they'll get the job done. Oh yeah, very confident. You know, the Corps has made that commitment to, to us and to the community, 
They have all those contracts set up and they have a schedule outlined. But assuming they meet that schedule, Strudley says the levy won't be much stronger than the one that failed in March and four other times since it was built in the 1940s, a system designated by Congress as inadequate in 1966. I can't with clear conscience tell the community not to be worried. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We still have an old aging levy system that needs to be rebuilt. And that rebuilding is still years away. This is a big project. We collectively need to go through acquiring easements or uh, you know, acquisitions of property to make this project move forward. There are utilities that need to be moved. There's no way to advance that at a quicker pace than we're doing now. Just last week, a bill that would expedite permitting passed the state legislature. It was written by California Assembly Speaker Robert Rivas, whose district includes Pajaro. That could speed things up by as much as five years. And U.S. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who also represents Pajaro, is seeking federal funding to streamline the Army Corps' contracting. But that's bottled up in the congressional budget battle. Officials had hoped they could at least incorporate some of the bigger upgrades into this year's levy repairs, but Strudley says even that has hit a wall of realities. Recovery has been slow for many residents in Pajaro. Some are still struggling to find a permanent place to live. While some businesses are back open, Pajaro Middle School remains closed, and so is the public library. Some Pajaro residents, like Leonardo Torres, feel left behind by the government and wonder why the levy was neglected for so long. They have no respect for this community, period. I mean, if this would be a much rich neighborhood, I'm pretty sure they will be more careful about what they're doing. Mark Strudley says he feels their pain. If I were a community member, I would be frustrated just like they are. You know, they've been living with these old levies for decades in, in vulnerability. Um, the sad truth is that any project of this scale is going to take many years to build. Still, Strudley believes the project has turned a corner. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of pessimism out there, and it's understandable. Because of the tragedy, because of the devastation, it's unthinkable. But ultimately, we do have a rosy future. It's a little bit in the distance here. And that means that this winter, Strudley and his team will once again be patrolling the levee when it rains, trying to shore up weak spots and prevent another flood. And the people of Pajaro will spend another season on edge, just as they have for decades. For the California Report, I'm Scott Cohn in Pajaro. A citizens group in South Lake Tahoe is pushing for a tax on the thousands of vacation homes that sit empty in the community most of the year to raise money for affordable housing. Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has the story. Amelia Richmond is with the group Locals for Affordable Housing. She says 45% of the city's homes are vacant six months or more during the year, making it harder for locals to find an affordable place to live. Essentially, what we're just seeing is people who are making some of um, the lower wages in our community are no longer able to afford housing. And as a result, a lot of businesses you know, your coffee shops, your restaurants, your mom and pop businesses aren't able to find and retain employees. At the end of the day, we're, we're losing employees, we're losing families. Richmond says her group hopes to place a voter initiative on the November 2024 ballot. She says it would be modeled after the city of Berkeley's vacancy tax, which requires owners to pay $3,000 for the first year and 6000 every year after. 
The city of Sacramento has discussed a similar measure. Voters in Santa Cruz defeated a vacancy tax proposal last year. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, September 19th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Mavi Bolaños. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Let's take a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly clear with a low around 54. Wednesday will be sunny and warm with a high near 76. And Wednesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 52. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m., areas of fog after 2 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 41. Wednesday, areas of fog before 10 a.m., otherwise increasing clouds with a high near 68. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 46. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 57. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 84. And Wednesday night, clear with a low around 56. And in the Sacramento area, the National Weather Service has issued a fire weather watch for gusty winds and low humidity, which is in effect from Wednesday evening through Thursday afternoon. So what can we expect? We can expect winds 15 to 25 miles per hour with gusts as high as 30 to 35 miles per hour and low humidity with overnight recoveries of 35 to 55 percent and on Thursday, a minimum relative humidity of just 17 percent. The area most threatened is currently the west side of the Sacramento Valley, mainly along and just west of I-5, as well as the northeast foothills. This combination of gusty winds and low humidity can cause fire to rapidly grow in size and intensity, so as a result, outdoor burning is not recommended. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. rely on water for a number of different things, and whenever a population needs one specific thing in order to maintain normalcy and sustain life itself, it's easy for things to get complicated. Sometimes that's where regulations come in. Up next, KVMR's Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about the different ways that California's water-related regulations and bills are passed and implemented. The Water News is sponsored by Clearwater and Filtration offering solutions for water quality, well operations, maintenance, and water storage management problems. Steve, uh, today let's talk about the various ways that California water-related bills get passed and implemented. All right, that's an interesting conversation because, you know, there is an intended purpose and outcome of these California bills, and a lot of times they can be quite different when the public starts pushing back on them when when you begin to implement them. Or, you know, sometimes public does not push back very much. But uh, here's a bill. Here's a recent bill, okay, that was passed. It's a testing for lead in drinking water at preschools, Uh, not only preschools, but also uh, child daycare facilities and K-12 schools on public land. It's called AB 249, and As you can imagine, Flint, Michigan, has something to do with why we passed this right here in our own state of California. Uh, Schools, uh, the way it's stated, schools that were built before 2010, and they are served by a community water system, 
they need to be tested. All the potable water outlets need to be tested for lead. And then that needs to be reported to the school, the educational agency, and also the state water regulators. Now, if the lead concentrations in that water, that drinking water, is uh, less is greater than five parts per billion, that's a small amount, but it doesn't take much, they need to shut it down. And then it needs to be shut down immediately. Um, now, all of this has to be accomplished by 2027. So uh, they're giving them a few years to get this thing done. Now, many times the pushback actually sounds reasonable. For example, the school administrators in the California Association of School Business Officials, they're concerned that the water supplies to the entire schools could be closed down because there's a a positive. There's a high lead content. And how how are you going to teach if you have to close down your school? You need water for a lot of different things. Now, the intermediate response that they're hoping to, uh, to get accepted is if you flush the water for 30 seconds prior to use, a lot of times that will lower the lead levels to a, a level that's safe. So you need interim steps is the name of the game, and that's how the public pushed back in that particular situation. So there's still a lot of actions that need to be taken once a bill is passed. Quite a process, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Steve. Um it sounds reasonable. Are there other, maybe less reasonable, <laughs> outcomes that have happened in the past? Oh, well, you probably already know the answer to that. There is a pending situation happening right now. Let me explain. Everyone has heard of the declining groundwater levels in many parts of the Central Valley, okay? It's common. Everybody knows this, not only in our country, our state, our country, but also around the world. In order to correct this over-pumping problem, California passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in 2014. This was considered a really rare large-scale environmental reform for managing groundwater resources more sustainably. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind type of thing. They are trying to avoid undesirable impacts. We don't want undesirable impacts, and they're defined in a number of different ways, but a couple of those ways is we don't want to have chronic lowering of the groundwater levels, and we don't want to have land subsidence. It causes all kinds of problems. Now, more recently, the scientific paper was published in the scientific journal called Nature. People have heard of that. And that, ha- that was uh, uh, published this year. The authors looked into the minimum threshold requirements that the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act is, is enforcing and also the monitoring points where compliance is, is made from. So that's what they're focused on right now. How did they research uh, this program? Uh, The authors reviewed 60 of the groundwater sustainability plans in 35 different sub-basins in the Central Valley. These plans discuss everything, you know, where where they're vulnerable, what they're going to do about it, how quickly are they going to bring those water levels down or up uh, to a more shallow depth and, you know, correct the problems. Now, this particular research was trying to answer three questions. Okay, the first question is, how did expected water levels compare when you project the, the levels of improvement to year 2040, which is when everyone's supposed to be in compliance? And the secondly, you know, how will how the expected water levels impact domestic and public water supplies? Okay, very different from the Central Valley. I mean, when I think of Central Valley, I think of tomatoes. I think of all kinds of vegetables and nuts and things. So uh, public water supplies, domestic supplies, how will they be impacted uh, through time? And then lastly, to what extent are the vulnerable groups, like disadvantaged communities, being monitored and measured? You know, are they being considered in, in what's being happening right now down there? Well, what did they find, Steve? 
Well, first of all, the legislative strategy is a top-down, bottom-up approach, and that means that the state's deciding on the ultimate goal criteria, okay, those uh, undesirable consequences. And then the local groundwater sustainability agencies that were created in various areas, they decide how to actually implement the program to safeguard and prevent achieving, you know, getting into these undesirable consequences. That's how it's set up. So people have come together, groups have come together, uh, many stakeholders have come together. What they have found is this, the groundwater levels, now this was 2014 when it was passed, right? Uh, when, uh, so now it's 2023. So now the groundwater levels are expected to decline <laughs> under the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act anyhow. So in other words, they're, they're really not going to make much of an improvement. This is what they're projecting. The management approaches submitted to the state result in the same groundwater level declines as business as usual extraction. Sounds like politics might be coming into play and all that. And, uh, and lastly, thousands of domestic and public supply wells are at risk of losing some or all of their water. So it's not a good outcome. They need to make some adjustments. It was noticed that the water stakeholders didn't include all the water users with equal weight or even at all. And the monitoring points, they don't always monitor the areas of domestic and water supply wells. Uh, and, and especially in including the disadvantaged communities. So there are blind spots in how things are being implemented. Now, when I reflect on what's going on with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act and its implementation, I, I'm trying to consider, I'm, I'm trying to look at, so how, how are we in the foothills going to be responding to our declining water levels as they develop? And they will, like most places, you know, when we get into these significant uh, periods of drought. And so what I find, what I've learned from this is really we need to fall back on, on the fundamental value systems that we are as a community. That's the fundamental base. And so if we can evaluate various groundwater management options in the foothills by first testing those and see how they align with our values, you know, what, how we want to treat each other, then we will find success in the foothill communities and we'll be proud of it. So I'm hoping that we're going to learn from the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And as these, these uh, regulations pass, uh, our state uh, capital, we here in the foothills will implement them very appropriately and very effectively for all those in the community. Very optimistic, Steve. <laughs> you always I'm, are. I'm hopeful. <laughs> <clears throat> Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been... Another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at apparationunite.co. A Treasury bill is a short-term United States government debt obligation backed by the Treasury Department. They usually come with a maturity of one year or less. Coming up in his commentary, Money Matters, Mark Cunaberti will discuss the ins and outs of a three- to six-month Treasury bill and all that they imply. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Looking at the three- or six-month Treasury bill, there's a lot to like. Treasury bills, for those wondering, are just IOUs from the government. No need to be complicated here. Just know when you buy a Treasury bill, you have lent your money to Uncle Sam. A three-month bill means you get your money back in three months, and a six-month bill means you get your money back in six. So on and so forth, ad infinitum, up until about 30 years or so. And the 30-year T-bill is actually called a bond. Instead of a bill, your payoff for buying these things is the interest they pay you. 
Yes, I know the name change from bills to bonds is confusing, but in my opinion, the financial folks, of which I am a reluctant part of on occasion, like to do things to confuse you to make you think you need us. My opinion, of course. Just know, however, that the bills and bonds are both U.S. government debt and the term of the investment is called the maturity date. An added bonus is the interest income is also exempt from state and local taxes. In any case, unlike treasury bills of the past decade or so, which paid kind of a paltry return, these three and six month issues, and even a bit further out, can now pay north of 5% annually, thanks to the Federal Reserve's crusade of jacking up interest rates in an attempt to quell our massive inflation. Keep in mind the APR, the annual percentage rate, means how much interest you will get over a year. So if you buy a three-month T-bill yielding over 5% annually, you have to buy four in a row. That's assuming the rates don't drop every three months when you have to buy the next one, which they could. One reason to buy U.S. government issues like T-bills is that they are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. That means they are regarded as having a 100% guarantee as to the terms of the investment. This is not the say one cannot lose money on a treasury bill, sell a three-month treasury bill before the three-month maturity date, or the six-month bill before the six-month maturity date, and you could take a hit on the principal, hence the reason I said as to the terms of the investment. During a recent seminar I gave, everyone in attendance agreed the current rates on the short-term U.S. debt, like treasury bills, was decent. Then I asked what was bad about a three or six months treasury bill paying north of 5%, and the room fell silent. The answer as to what might not be so good about the three or six month T-bills paying over five is that they're only three or six months in duration. That means while the current rates may be attractive, rates can move lower. They can move up. Up, they can move down or stay the same, and with the Federal Reserve on an historic interest rate crusade, the full effect of their actions are really anyone's guess. Federal Reserve actions, like raising interest rates or lowering them, can take many months to over a year or more to take hold, so it's difficult to forecast whether rates will be up or down a year or two from now, hence the potential drawback of investing in short-term treasury bills and the like. If rates move up, short-term treasury bills could be rolled over quickly to the new higher rates, and and that's good. But if rates drop, your higher-paying short-term treasury bill goes away when they expire along with your 5% APR. The key is where we think rates will go in the future, up or down. Up, as mentioned, is good for short-term investments as they can be rolled over quickly to the higher rate as they reach maturity. When rates move down, that is bad for short-term investments, such as three- or six-month treasury bills, as you lose the rate once the T-bill expires and the new issues could offer less in payment to you. If we look at interest rates in the past five decades, it shows a steady decline since the 1980s, with the exception of last year where the chart shows a little bit of a blip, which is our 5% rates. Nowadays, the chart may give us a heads up as to rates and their long-term direction. If the long-term direction continues, like the chart says for the last 50 years, which for all intents and purposes appears to be in the downward direction, investors might look for a way to lock in today's current rates with a variety of investment vehicles that strive to do just that, lock in today's high rates for a longer period of time. 
You can contact me if you want to read more and need more information or see some of my past articles on this. And remember, I'm watching the market so you don't have to. And this newscast expresses my opinion only. It's not meant as investment advice or the recommendation to buy or sell anything or represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet is staff members are underwriting. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, in California insurance license OL342. I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California, and our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. It's our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cooper. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, September 19th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and Automotive City, family-owned and operated, offering complete automotive service for foreign and domestic vehicles, also smog testing, Napa Auto Care Center, and AAA-approved facility. Monday through Thursday, 7 to 4.30, automotivecitygrassvalley.com. And Vols Bros Automotive, serving the community since 1982. Located at 962 Golden Gate Terrace in Grass Valley. Same workmanship, customer service, and community involvement. Online at VolsBros.com. Support for KVMAR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem, and I hope you have a great night. Thank you.